I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, Serrano-style hams, prosciutto-style hams, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at Surrey Farms. Dot com or virginiatraditions.com Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we are the ladies of Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York, except in the winter, which it is now. And now we're in our radio box. <laughs> <laughs> and we are talking uh, for this month all about economic botany. Yes. Today's show is on cotton. That's right. Cotton picking show. That's right. We're going to have some cotton picking music too, aren't we, Alice? <laughs> I think so, yeah. So, you all, you know, you're regular listeners. <laughs> y'all. Y'all listen up now, we're ta- right? We're talking about cotton. We're talking about we're saying cotton. y'all. Saying y'all. We're trying to bring the culture to horticulture. <laughs> and to that end, I'm going to speak in this accent the whole time. Not. Um, we have begun this new series, right? So, we feel we felt that we should start the series because we we talk about culture we talk about ornamental plants and so many different topics but botany and economics can't be separated at all I don't think you know I mean it's it's what countries were based on yeah (laughs) and how do you define economic botany well you know broadly defined it's basically just the study of relationships between plants and people but economic botany contributes to so many other disciplines to anthropology biology conservation so many other fields of science the link between botany and anthropology explores the way humans use the plants and not just for food but for shelter for medicines for textiles everything so the word um uh comes from ethos ethnos right for race from Greek, race of, or people or cultural group, and botanikos, which comes from Greek meaning herbs. And that can mean the, lo- the plant lore. So the words together can mean the plant lore of a race or people, as well as the study of that lore. And economic botanists, these researchers, they rely on a, on a variety of disciplines to, um, to explain this interaction you know, of plants and society on our planet and the kinds of questions that they ask I find really interesting like where was rubber first used what um, other plants that we're not using currently might have useful properties Um, 
they look at the botany of wheat. How does it differ, you know, from the other grasses? They look at landscapes and other things like how, how will the pressures of like increasing populations and the need for more and more natural resources affect the landscape? And one of the most important questions of our era, can there be a balance between modern humanity's needs and the available natural resources that will provide sustainable that will prove sustainable for future generations. This is the fundamental question yeah. of our time. And botany is at the very core of it. Hence Heritage Radio Network. Right. Plug, plug. <laughs> plug, plug. So botany, of course, it's interesting to remember, came about through medicine and the development of herbal remedies. Mm-hmm. Thus, at its very advent, botany was economic as well as systematic. So when people sometimes think about botany, they think of, oh, botany is the study of naming of plants. You know, you name and you categorize. Linnaeus, right. But it's not just about that. You know, because as plants became useful for herbs and for curatives, their economic value increased. increased right. And mm-hmm. in fact, I wanted to read an early set of instructions drawn up by the cosmographer of Charles V, who was the last Holy Roman Empire, Emperor, he's, he was instructed by Charles to determine, I quote, what are the items of sustenance of the land and which ones are generally used, whether fruits or seeds and all matter of spices, drugs, or whatever other sense, and find out the time in which one can reproduce the trees, the plants, the herbs, and fruits that these parts offer and if the natives use them for medicines as we do. Mm-hmm. So during that time, you know, they were, of course, looking for gold, but they were looking for the very basis of their lives and their livelihood, botany, plants Mm -hmm. and economics. So that they could monopolize it. Right. (laughs) And sometimes they did. So we thought, what is the perfect plant and or crop to begin this with? Right. What are the American kind of crops? Because Alice and I, you know, we believe in America still. And, um, you know, I, one of, one of my, (laughs) one of my, and you know, I chose to be an American citizen. I chose that. (laughs) I'm waving a flag as Alice. Cotton. um, Cotton. So it's going to be cotton, tobacco, indigo, and rice are going to be our economic topics for the month of February. And, um, I'm going to date myself now, but I don't, I don't think it's still, the commercial, but I, those of you who are of my generation or older will remember the commercial for cotton. The look, the feel <laughs> of cotton. The look, the feel, yeah. The fabric of our lives. Yeah. Now, that advertising copywriter understood the history mm-hmm. of cotton, I think. Which you know? is actually very interesting since your father was a tailor, came here from Italy, mm-hmm. you know, with, he followed the, he followed the plant and, and the economics of it mm-hmm. and then produced this awesome family and this great business partner that I have. Thank you, Alice. So, <laughs> <laughs> so cotton, the it, fabric of our lives, the fabric of our lives, this, this plant which I think is so quintessentially American. It, it was the engine and the emblem of our economic and political growth. And, and it is just that, a plant mm-hmm. that has spawned towns and cities and industries. It clothes us. Mm-hmm. It, it is, it's phenomenal to our history as a, as a culture. But it's such a powerful... I cannot think of cotton without thinking of slavery i cannot exactly you know i i mean this is something that well, is who's going to do the work that's the whole you know yeah i mean it it's the same with a pineapple 
you know, or tobacco, which we'll talk about, right. you know, the next railroad, time. who's going to build the railroad, you know, all of our things. Who's the labor force? Yeah. And when I think about, you know, it's just in a, it's just, you know, completely together. It's it's can't be separated. Cotton and slavery in the South is like, you know, for, it's a white, for me personally, it's a white and black topic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, more than tobacco for me, Alice. It's like really like every time I think about like a, a cotton item, you know, yeah. and also being obsessed with like the 19th century like I am. And I he- read about the abolitionists and stuff refusing to wear cotton, you mm-hmm. know, because of its, mm-hmm. you know, because of everything associated with slavery. So what is cotton? Cotton is the, the species or short staple cotton um, is gossypium hirsutum. 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 All right. And it's the kind that could be grown um, in many areas, um, in non-coastal areas and upland areas. And it was called, nicknamed upland cotton. And this dirty plant was growing, already growing over a wide geographical range, but it presented some different problems. Upland cotton was so difficult to clean that this roller gin that was used as hand sort of uh, machine Mm -hmm. could not be used to clean it. Mm -hmm. So instead, it took one person an entire day to tear one to two pounds of cotton from these clinging seeds. To, to, to filter out the seeds, yeah. Yeah. So African slaves had developed a kind of comb to speed up the process. However, it was still very, very slow. Um, and it created this sort of bottleneck between the field and the factory, mm-hmm. you know. So America was producing the cotton that was going to supply the British mills. Mm-hmm. And we were not producing it. Fast, fast enough, fast enough to, to meet their demands. So, of course, we've all you know heard in school about Eli Whitney. He's credited with inventing the machine that m- finally allowed this kind of cotton, the short stable cotton, um, to be cleaned much faster. He invented the cotton gin, and he's an interesting character. After graduating from Yale University in 1792, he traveled south to accept a teaching job. So, you know. Um, now this Teach for America, I guess he was maybe one of the first Teach, teach for America, for America. Teach for America. Right. graduates. <laughs> anyway, while he was staying near Savannah, Georgia, at the plantation of a widow, Catherine Green, I, I could see a novel in this, don't you, Alice? Mulberry like, Grove. Right, Mulberry right. Grove. <laughs> he heard Phineas Miller, the manager of the estate, and Mrs. Green and other planters lamenting their inability to exploit this upland cotton. So he applied his familiarity with New England textile machinery, <laughs> which I don't know exactly how he was familiar with it, but it was to the problem and in roughly 10 days during the spring of 1793 he developed a model and when Whitney fed this upland cotton into the machine the wire teeth pulled the cotton fibers through the small slats in a grate separating the seeds from the fiber the gin tended to damage the fires fibers by cutting some of them short so the cotton was worth only half the price but it enabled a single worker to clean 50 pounds of cotton a day yeah so so you can imagine the importance of that machine to the economics of running a farm. So think exponentially. All of a sudden, you can clean it. Fa- you can pick it faster. You can clean it faster. You can ship it faster. And you know your your plantation is growing by leaps and bounds. Towns are growing mm-hmm. by leaps and bounds because of this. Rivers, you know, transportation. Let's move this stuff out. It's it's just unfathomable that this one plant has had this economic impact. On and the this United simple States. device, you know, yeah. by to, he unfortunately didn't patent 
patented fast enough, so a lot of people copied it and were able to mm-hmm. put many, many gins, as they were called, into production. So, you know, these hand-cranked gins, you know, um, were eventually replaced by the ones that were drawn by animals or water-cranked mm-hmm. ones, and they could do 500 pounds of cotton mm-hmm. a day. So mm-hmm. it just got faster and faster as our demand, you know, for for goods, you know, increased. So the planters could plant vast amounts of cotton and they could, you know, produce huge yields per acre and they would then spread out and take more land and produce more and more and more. In fact, um, the Sea Island cotton that was, you know, easier to clean remained um, at about 1.5 million pounds annually, but the upland cotton production skyrocketed in 1793 from 150,000 pounds to 6.5 million pounds by 1795. So in three years, mm-hmm. the, the amount of cotton produced was just so much exponentially bigger. I love this quote from um, Senator James Henry Hammond from South Carolina in 1858. He says, what would happen if no cotton was furnished for three years? England would topple headlong and carry the whole civilized world with her. No, you dare not make war on our cotton. No power on earth dare makes war on cotton. Cotton is king. So Hammond's reasoning was very hard to find fault since so many people were making so much money off of it. And government statistics from 1860 confirmed that the 12, 12 wealthiest counties in the United States were in the South. Isn't that astounding considering history like our current times? You know? Yeah, right. That's why, you know, the South will rise again, Carmen. <laughs> It will. <laughs> and that's why, you know, a year or two later, they, they were like, we can we can separate. We can <laughs> separate. We, yeah. You know, we're, we're an economic superpower. The South's white gold was not mark, uh, marketed directly to Europe. Rather, it was sent to New York, where factors who loaned money to the planters in advance of the crop, um, commodities future traders and merchants, shipped it to the Northeast textile mills, like up in Lowell. Massachusetts, which produced 100 million worth of cotton goods or to Great Britain. So the northern banks are providing loans to southern planters to southern planters to purchase slaves and land. It's a whole engine. It's a um, cycle. Yeah. People think of the north and the south being sort of interdependent, you know, um, independent, I should say. And we, the New England, that those thrifty New Englanders were very dependent on that southern cotton. Well, because they were making money off of it. Yeah. Right. So, uh, cotton in the international slave trade. Raw cotton from the United States that arrived in Liverpool and was converted into textiles in, in the British mills would be loaded onto British slave ships. In Africa, captains and slave traders would negotiate which assortment of trade goods, including iron bars, glass beads, rum, tobacco, and cotton textiles, they would exchange for the slaves. So then these slave ships would bring enslaved Africans to the United States to work on tobacco, rice, and ultimately sugar and cotton plantations. So as the northern mills in the United States entered the cotton textile trade, cheap um, American cottons found their way to the east coast of Africa, to Zanzibar. Nicknamed Americana by the Africans, the textile was used to acquire ivory, then legal, by captains such as William Zanzibar Smith in the mid-1830s. 
or to acquire slaves. So you think about it. These African slaves were producing the cotton that would then be traded for more of their own kind. Mm -hmm. You know, it's It's a a sad sad story and that's why I say it is a black and white story yeah it's very sad we have to take a break we'll be back in a few minutes you're listening to we dig plants on heritage radio network and ladies and gentlemen my guest of honor here tonight is the man that back in that cold winter of 1937 put us on the bus that took us to the train that carried us down to the hills at Pine Bluff to save us from being washed away in a flood. My 72-year-old father, Mr. Ray Cash. Well, I was four years old at the time, and I can't remember a lot about it, but Daddy said that we got back home, that the house was full of mud, chickens and pigs and dogs and nine bullfrogs. Mama cleaned the house out that winter and the next spring daddy and my older brother Roy cleared a lot more cotton land and the cotton grew tall in 1938. We got a crop that was fair to Midland, which incidentally is a grade of cotton. <laughs> I got cotton in the bottom land. It's up and growing and I got a good stand. My good wife and them kids of mine Are gonna get new shoes come pickin' time Get new shoes come pickin' time Every night when I go to bed I thank the Lord that my kids are fed They live on beans eight days and nine But I'll get them fat come pickin' time Get them fat come pickin' time it's hard to see by the cola light And I turn it off pretty early at night A jug of cola cost a dime But I'll set up late come pickin' time Set up late come pickin' time My old wagon barely gets me to town I patched the wheels and I watered them down I'm gonna keep her in shape so she'll be fine to haul my cotton come picking time To haul my cotton come picking time Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. That song, Johnny Cash, Pickin' Time, actually reminds me so much of my grandfather and my dad, uh, born in, in the Delta of, Missis- of Tennessee, just north of Memphis. And my grandfather was actually a sharecropper and grew cotton. So this is a very personal topic. <laughs> it's a tearjerker. It is, yeah. It's a, it's well, a it's, a, it's a rough subject, yeah. you know. It's, um, it's a beautiful product. Um, it, it is the fabric of our lives. It's in every aspect of our lives. Nobody can avoid cotton. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of controversy around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one point of controversy that I just want to kind of end with uh, before we get into cotton as a plant and as a species is a consequence of cotton cultivation was actually the ruination of of some of our land. Um, By 1835, eastern Georgia topsoil was gone and the remaining clay was severely eroded. So planters were forced to look westward 
Um, coupled with the appetite of those who sought their fortune growing cotton, this created an enormous appetite for land and the impetus to move west. So that's why I was saying earlier that towns really grew up because of this cotton. Um, mm-hmm. Rivers, plantations, uh, Wherever there was good water and and new land, because it did suck everything out of it. Exactly. So one immediate consequence was the removal of Native Americans to Indian Territory west of the Mississippi River. That's why my family uh, traveled west, too, for land acquisition and for for economics, you know, for farming. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's lighten this up a little bit and talk about botany, and -hmm. let's talk about cotton as a plant. Well, while we talked a lot about how it was growing um, in the United States, actually there are two, several species of cotton, and one is native to the Americas, mm-hmm. and one is native to India. Um, the cotton that um, is used to make actually over 40% of the world's textile um, comes from India and Pakistan. They're the two top uh, producing countries now. Yeah, and I actually just heard a statistic that get ready, Americans, your T-shirts are going <coughs> to go up two, two to three dollars because of terrible rain um, problems in India this past year. So it's going to hit you this coming spring. Um, well, I'll just wear silk. Naughty <laughs> <laughs> da. <Da-da. laughs> um, well, as Alice was saying, um, you know, cotton is one of the most heavily sprayed crops, mm-hmm. you know, and that adds to the cost, you know, but people are starting to try to find, you know, new varieties and new initiatives to support organic cotton growing, you know, so organics is not just for what you put inside you, but also what you put on your body. They're trying right. to way, move away from these large monocrops and try to, you know, make it a little more, more fa- sustainable, sustainable right. and fair. So, um, in Sanskrit, the word for cotton is uh, vandara or kapasi or samudrata. Um, its botanical name is Gossipium arboreum or Gossipium barbadense um, or the, the, um, the upland cotton, the Gossipium hirsutum. It's in the malva family or the marshmallow family, which is really oh. interesting. If you look at the flower, you'll see the mm-hmm. resemblance. But it's really, really interesting. Alice got me one Christmas, a big cotton bowl mm-hmm. that I hang on my Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really actually very beautiful. You know? uh, yeah, actually, the plant has become quite decorative um, in fashion. And, and I'm seeing it in a lot of restaurants, like as... As the kind of floral displays, you walk in, you know, to yeah. whatever restaurant. And, and it really is, it's a funny symbol to me because to me it's just all about work. And, and to appreciate it as a thing of beauty seems a little odd. <laughs> yeah. But it really is. Yeah, I and mean, I think a lot of people that would see it in a vase, as a, it actually makes a very excellent dried flower, mm-hmm. so to speak. Even though forever. Yeah, we're not, we're not actually, it's not the flower, it's the seed pod and mm-hmm. the seed fibers mm-hmm. um, that you're looking at. You know, you nobody would probably ever know that that was cotton. But yeah. if you've ever seen a field of cotton, it is remarkable because it looks like snow. Yeah. Um, and then and then you have these very very beautiful dark pods um, and stalks that stick up. So it's a very strange contrast between like dark 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 brown for the pod and then this white 
fluff yeah. coming out of it. And the so. cotton plants can get uh, quite large. Um, they're they're shrubby. Mm-hmm. They can get from six to twenty meters high. Um, mm-hmm. Although you know the varieties that are grown in cultivation are much much shorter, so that they can be you know picked and processed a lot easier. Um, they have these broad leaves of like three or four. Uh, or five or even seven lobes Mm -hmm. Um, and as Alice was saying they have creamy white flowers um, uh, that are produced and that later turn deep pink and then they fall off and then they leave these these pods, the seed pods called cotton bowls and inside the bowls are the seeds surrounded by the fibers and the fibers are spun into the thread for cloth Mm -hmm. Um, and these cotton fibers are used to make 40% of the world's textiles, more than wool more than silk, um, and um, there's a lot of different domesticated varieties um, depending on where you know you are growing it. Um, and ninety um, percent of the world's cotton is actually in just two cultivars: um, the hirsutum, which was the the uh, upland cotton that we were talking about, and the barbadensa. Um, the Asian cottons have more of an e- a minor economic role, mainly um, in Southeast Asia. Now, in a single pound of cotton, there may be, a hun- this is I found really interesting, there may be 100 million or more individual fibers. 100 wow. million or more. Each fiber is an outgrowth of a single cell that develops in the surface layer of the cotton seed. And during the early stages of its growth, the fiber elongates to its full length as a thin wall tube. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And then as it matures, the fiber wall is thickened by deposits of cellulose inside the tube, leaving a hollow area in the center. When the growth period ends and the living material dies, the fiber collapses and twists about its own axis. And if you've ever seen how cotton is spun, it's really, really interesting how it gets twisted together. And, you know, if you think of um, a piece of cotton string, you kind of think of it as like a continuous... No, you but know. it's it's the, it's several of those twists together. together. Yeah, it's really really um, fascinating. So South Asia has been the center of the world cotton trade for thousands of years, and that's where it was first cultivated um, in history, and also um, in South America. Um, the earliest written reference to cotton in South Asia is in the Rig Veda, dating from about 1500 BC. But um, it was believed that cotton was utilized in this region long before then. There are fragments of cotton textiles from the Indus Valley dating from around 3000 B.C. So they show that ancient civilizations of the region were skilled in spinning, weaving and dyeing the cotton. Mm -hmm. Um, There are paintings in the Ajanta Caves in Maharashtra show that a variety of patterns and colors had already been developed in India by 200 B.C. to 500 AD and these fabrics were in demand outside of Southeast Asia so they were you know probably exported to Greece you know even before Alexander the Great had established you know these the trade, trade routes, routes. Right. So, so it's really really interesting how long it's been in you know cotton has been associated with human civilization right well and of course South Asia is famous for its textiles and its fine cotton muslims were imported to the Greeks and the Romans Muslins from uh, Dhaka in Bangladesh were particularly prized. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus 
wrote about Indian cotton in the 5th century BC. He described trees that bore wool, (laughs) surpassing in beauty and in the quality of sheep's wool. And the Indians wear clothing from these trees. So this is why empires are born. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then, of course, it was brought in the 1600s by the European explorers. They brought it to the Americas and they found that, hey, it can grow really well here. And then we have this great, you know, yeah, this population this fertile land. Yeah, and, yeah. and free labor. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> you know, they did really well for themselves. One of the uh, interesting parts of the history of cotton I found was in thinking about Gandhi. Gandhi in India saw the revival of village economies as the key to India's spiritual and economic regeneration. He built his strategy around the revival of the traditional arts and skills that would feed local demands with local production. And as part of his policies of civil disobedience and non-cooperation, he encouraged people to boycott British goods, particularly textiles, and encouraged Indians to use homespun and woven cotton. So in India, he adopted the sharka, or spinning wheel, as the symbol of his principle of self-sufficiency. Mm. So, you know, there were... There was India producing the cotton, sending it to Britain, and then buying back more expensive British textiles. Mm-hmm. So he really turned that on its head. And, you know, he did it, I guess, 70 years ago now. So, you know, there's been three generations of that concept. Yeah. You know? Well, cotton can grow at altitudes of 1,000 meters in India, and it's planted in late spring when there is very little risk of frost. That's why it does so well in the south. It takes about 100 days for the plants to mature and produce fruits. Harvesting is a continuous process as the plants flower and fruit at different times. When it fruits or or boils um, are are mature, they burst out to reveal the masses of the soft white fibers attached to the seeds. So these hair-like fibers are actually about 90% cellulose. Yeah, as we were talking about when that cellulose expanded. Yeah. So the bowls also contain shorter fuzzy fibers known as linters and they are used industrially for making water soluble polymers and paper. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, Most of the seeds are separated from the fibers by a mechanical process known as ginning and are sewn together in bales. They are then shipped to textile spinning and weaving mills for thread and fabric production. And it actually kind of looks like bread. These these, uh, ginning bales. Yeah, that's right. It does. (laughs) Um, Now, the interesting thing, too, is that it's not just used as a fiber, you know, for clothing, clothing, but also um, in traditional medicine. The cotton seeds and leaves um, feature in traditional South Asian in South Asian medicine. They're taken internally and applied externally to treat to treat a range of conditions, um, you know, most notably for skin problems and injuries. For headaches, a drink is made from powdered cotton seeds and mixed with milk. Dysentery is also treated with an infusion of seeds and leaves. So I'd like to see some cocktail mixologist here in Manhattan make that make that cotton remedy drink. <laughs> yeah, and make sure the bathroom is readily available. <laughs> um, well, you know, in there is cottonseed meal is used as a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. 
you know, an organic fertilizer as well. Sure, um, right. And snake bites and sc- scorpion skin uh, stings apparently can be treated using infusions or mixtures of the seeds and leaves, sometimes in combination with mustard seeds. So, you know, if you're out there in the desert and you get bit, maybe you should have... Um, you know, some cotton seed <laughs> with you. <laughs> and it's also good for burns. The seeds mm-hmm. um, can be ground and mixed with ginger and water to form a paste, which is then smeared onto the affected area. So, so I cotton, think that the fabric of our, of, of our lives. That wraps up our show today. Thank you so much for listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Send us any thoughts you have on our Facebook fan page. Groundworks Inc. We dig plants. We're on Twitter now. We're, We're twittering. Mostly Alice is twittering. I'm just um, listening <laughs> it's, for the it's, twits. It's We Dig Plants. <laughs> and please let us know what your thoughts are. We'd love to hear if you have any stories about cotton, the fabric of our lives. Tell us. Thanks for listening. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks to Jack Insley for producing and to our sponsor and Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick. Thanks. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Foods USA. In late March, Dan, Andrea, Patrick, and the Heritage team are traveling to the coldest reaches of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont to help the Cantor family tap sugar maple trees. Then the maple sap will flow down to the sugar house where it is boiled gently over a wood fire just as it has been for generations. Just a few days later, this grade A amber syrup will be poured into the beautiful glass jugs and sent to you for pancakes, waffles, desserts, glazing hams, or just drinking by the spoonful. There's only a limited supply, so order today. Each one liter bottle is $45, including delivery. Delivery will be at the end of March, and we will notify you of the exact shipping date. Each shipment will include a CD explaining the whole process. You can also follow us on YouTube while we work and bottle. In the meantime, you can head over to the Heritage Radio Network archives and listen to Linda Palaccio talk about maple syrup on her show, A Taste of the Past, Episode 12. For more information, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Join wine impresarios Aaron Fitzpatrick and Brian DeMarco as they dish out on the latest industry news with winemakers and tastemakers on Heritage Radio Network's revamped wine show, Unfiltered. Aaron Fitzpatrick, one of the first hosts on HRN with her program at the root of it, amps up the volume and unfiltered content with co-host Brian DeMarco in this 2011 Redux. True to the original format, Aaron and Brian will keep you abreast of current happenings and break down the news and global events, distilling complex into anecdotal stories that inspire. From media and political events to hailstorms in Argentina, no topic is out of bounds. Tune in every week to hear them chat up the industry's biggest personalities and host on-air tastings with visiting vintners and the country's hottest sommeliers. Whether you're an expert or an enthusiast, Unfiltered demystifies wine and lets you know what it really takes to get a bottle from the vineyard to your neighborhood wine shop. Unfiltered broadcasts live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, 
Wiley Dufresne of WD50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Boltley of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.